This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you so much. Um, I'm very excited to be here. Um, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge, do a land acknowledgement. I'd like to acknowledge the Ramatash Ohlone people, who are the traditional custodians of this land. We pay our respects to the Ramatash Ohlone elders, past, present, and future, who call this place the land that UCSF sits upon their home. We are proud to continue their tradition of coming together and growing as a community. We thank the Ramatash Ohlone people and community for their stewardship and support, and we look forward to strengthening our ties as we continue our relationship of mutual respect and understanding. So welcome, everybody. Um, I was so excited when I received the invitation to give this talk today on the history of racism and health, the UCSF Repair Project and re on reparations and anti-institutional racism. Before we begin, I want to just say that, you know, as we do this work and as we find ourselves at this mini medical school, and I have taught in the mini medical school before, um, you know, it is a very unique moment. And in part, that unique moment came from the documentation and the dissemination of the video that documented George Floyd's murder. And in doing so, um, it galvanized the nation against social and racial injustice. And we saw there were confluence influences that made this happen, but we really saw um, increased uh, attention, discussion, and um, just a, a flurry of activity that took place after this moment um, in American history. This isn't the first time that we see the ways in which a murder and a murder of a black man would uh, be this moment that we could uh, see how the outrage would allow um, a nation to uh, come against, so come come together, and discuss social and racial injustice, and talk about uh, change and an opportunity for those that have been doing the work for a very long time to be able to get that speaking opportunity and to get the attention in order to be talking about many of the. Um, the injustices that they saw, whether it was in their uh, homes, whether it was in their society, whether it was in um, their their profession, there was much discussion. And the AMA also came out and said some really strong things against racism. And really, it's a remarkable, given the history of the AMA, it is a remarkable um, statement or declaration, statement of declarations about racism and the ways in which they want to discuss it and address it in health and healthcare. And so I think it's important to just bring this to light that in 1955, Emmett Till, he was a black 14 year old Chicago boy who was brutally murdered and uh, in Mississippi after he was allegedly um, found to be whistling at a white woman. And uh, she would later on recount at her deathbed, but that is really not necessarily the focus of the story. The story here is that he's murdered um, by white men in the South and he is unrecognizable. His mother decides that she is going to um, take this opportunity to document his murder and the way the defigurement um, is so extreme, the ways in which discrimination um, was just outright violent and uh, asks Jet Magazine to come to his funeral and to document uh, what had happened. And like I said before, this became a moment where in which um, Dr. King, Rosa Parks, and others who had been part of the civil rights struggle um, were able to use this event to uh, really galvanize a movement and make um, efforts forward. For example, 100 days after Till's murder, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat um, to a white passenger 
on a Montgomery City bus and was arrested for violating Alabama's bus segregation laws. And this really began the uh, Montgomery bus boycott that brought to light um, segregation in public spaces. Also, Dr. King would use uh, Till's murder as a reference to talk about the evils of racial injustice. He, at a Mother's Day sermon, referred to Emmett Till screaming from the rushing waters in Mississippi. And um, his iconic speech, his I Have a Dream speech, was actually given on the anniversary of Emmett Till's murder. And so we see the ways in which uh, it's it, it feels like this is a moment where we need to also acknowledge how movements um, gain opportunity and they're gaining opportunity through the murdering of black men. And, um, and it really brings to light the, the dangerous and life and death situation of racism. And we can find that definitely in the case when it comes to the role of racism in health and healthcare. In fact, um, the repair project was conceived two months after the murder of George Floyd and the dissemination of that video that documented his, his last minutes of his life. Myself and a student who had been working on a paper for annual conference uh, for, an, for the American Historians of Medicine um, come together once a year and present papers. And our paper was going to be on medical reparations. And I had this memory of us when we decided to propose this paper and we were going to give this talk. Um, we were very uh, strategic about it. We thought there was a 50-50 chance that this could happen. We weren't quite sure um, whether the community uh, was... Uh, was a space where in which we would be able to share some of our arguments about the ways in which we felt that there needed to be an active engagement with the past and talking about the ways in which we need to repair and heal um, historical medical trauma as part of a health, uh, the institution of health and health care. Now, a few months after um, George Floyd's murder and this galvanizing moment, we were able to not only push forward the idea of medical reparations, but we came together with other students and faculty from across UCSF who wanted to take similar action and didn't want it just to be merely um, performative. But instead, we really wanted to talk about what we could do. What could we do as social scientists? What could we do as medical students? What could be done in bringing to light um, anti-Black racism in science, medicine, and healthcare? So to start with, the Repair Project is an acronym. And as you can see with the letters that are underlined here, REP stands for reparations and AIR stands for the AIR and anti-institutional racism. Our initiative is a three-year initiative. We decided to make it a three-year initiative in part because we wanted to show that we wanted to um, develop a campaign that was dedicated to addressing anti-Black racism in a way in which we could engage with the community over a longer period of time. So this wasn't just going to be a survey and then we were done, but instead we wanted to have an active longitudinal engagement. We decided to make it three years because we felt that that was a healthy duration for a campaign and that we could hopefully, as we um, were forming certain elements of this initiative, that we would be able to um, kind of sow the seeds for things that could remain after the campaign was over. Each year, we plan a series of events around a central theme. The first year, we focused on medical reparations. The second year, we're focusing on medical abolition. We have our first event, which is an imagining event. So the Repair Project has a website where we keep our activities uh, recorded, um, the ones that we decide to record, and we also feature primers and other types of materials in order for people to take the Repair Project and hopefully be able to use it, whether it's in 
um, discussions among uh, peers, or it happens to be um, uh, inspiration for a type of project that you would like to launch at your own institution, or ways in which you can just get invo- you can get involved in our project itself. In the first year, as we focused on medical reparations, we really looked at the past in a way in which it wasn't simply a, just a retelling of the past, but we did so in a way that we brought people who had experienced that past and also wanted to critically engage with certain elements of that past that persist and continue to perpetuate inequities. And that leads me in part to this talk today. The talk today, well, um, it does have to do about the repair project. It does all have to. It also has to do with what motivates us in the repair project, which in part is talking about the historical medical trauma that we see in health and healthcare. And in this case, really kind of um, for this talk, I really want to d- delve into this notion of the history of racism in health. So there's a few objectives I'd like to bring to the group today. One is I'd like us to consider that race has been understood through a prism of fitness and health. So the way in which racial categorization, which has no biological basis, um, but it was scientifically invented, was done so in a way in which it really did so through a prism of who was the fittest, who was not, and who uh, was the epitome of health and what characteristics helped clue us into what that, how that, um, it clued us into that being the case. Another piece or another objective I'd like to cover today is about public health. And so when we look at the history of racism and health, looking at the ways in which it is playing a huge role in the history of public health is worth consideration. And part of public health has been used to justify discriminatory practices and policies Um, for a very long time. And some would argue still today, there are elements of public health that um, are that focus more on the protection of certain populations over others. Another objective I'd like to cover today has to do with how medical professionalization was established in the U.S. And it was done so very strategically in a 19th century health marketplace. Um, And in order to identify itself and separate it from the competitors, it used racism and sexism in order to give it a definition. Another objective that I would like to cover today has to do with healthcare itself. And I would like to argue that healthcare in America has never been devoid of racism. It has always played a role. And the last objective is about health research. Health research has exploited and contributed to institutional racism in the United States. And you might know some of these elements about, um, you might know elements about some of these objectives. Maybe these objectives might be very new to you. These are new historical facts. Um, I definitely want to bring the idea that we are talking about the history of racism and health. So the, these objectives um, could definitely be objectives that could be used to talk about contemporary context. And while there are times where I'll bring up a contemporary context, for the most part, um, my work here, um, I I looked at the rest of the week's uh, uh, talks and it's just an amazing lineup. I mean, it's so exciting. Um, And so what I'm hoping that I can do, and I'm, I'm humbled by doing so, is to be able to provide that historical backdrop. Now, when we're reviewing those uh, those objectives, it might come to light that this is not necessarily a light uh, talk. This uh, some of this content can be triggering. I want to take a moment to acknowledge that. Hopefully, we can provide a, a brave space as much as we can on Zoom. Please acknowledge self care if at some point this just seems to be um, 
you need a little separation from it, from space from it. It will be recorded. You can come back to it. And I thought often when I need space, I, I go on a hike or go on a walk. And I wanted to share with you this image from the Diablo Range in California. It was a photo that was taken by Derek Newman. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about race and racism um, in a little in more general terms. There are a few quotes I want to share with you in part because I find them very helpful in providing a framework when talking about the role um, and the history of racism in health. The first quote is, the world got along without race for the overwhelming majority of its history. The U.S. has never been without it. And if you think about that and this concept, if that's the case, which it is, um, the U.S. has never been without race, one can say the same about American medicine and also notions of health. Another quote I want to share with you is from Shaka McLaughlin, and this is from an essay um, titled Black Data. Race is a tool, and it was intrinsic, not anterior, to constructions of capital, as well as to ideas about biology and culture. Why I find this another um, quote that I feel provides a really nice framework is the emphasis of how it, race is intrinsic, is baked into our understanding of capital and biology and culture. So even though race is uh, a cultural construct, racial categorization does not have a biological basis, it doesn't mean that it hasn't played a very um, a, a big role in our constructions of capital, our ideas about biology, and the way in which it plays a role in our culture, for sure. Another quote, and this is a quote I'll come back to throughout the presentation, is from Tanikisi Coates, and that is, race is the child of racism, not the father. So in thinking about this, when we talk, and this is in part why, why I appreciated so much the title of this talk being the history of racism in healthcare, because it really gets to the root cause of what we're talking about, the root object. So when we talk about race, we're really talking about a product of racism. And we'll talk more about that. And this quote will ground us throughout this talk. Another quote I'd like to share with you has to do about racism. And it's a definition. And I really appreciated Dr. Navarro's definition. And I'd like to offer this definition as well, which is race is the state sanction and or extra legal production and exploitation of group differentiated, oops, vulnerability to premature death. And in saying this and uh, adding this quote, I want to also have us consider this idea that this is when we talk about the history of racism and health, we're talking about it's a life or death situation. It causes death. And so as Shaka McLaughlin had, had mentioned, race is intrinsic to constructions of capital, ideas about biology and culture. It's also important to keep in mind that it's an idea about health and racism and that racism is really a life or death situation. So let's talk a little bit about, about racial categorization and where it came from. The belief that race, race is a biological construct is a scientific invention created by European scientists who believed in their own superiority. Its origins, 
and I understand that race as a concept predates the Enlightenment period, but our modern understanding of racial categorization dates back to this period, which is between 1685 or so to 1815. Racial categorization was used to justify inhumane conditions and the exploitation of labor and expert knowledge of non-Europeans. Categorization focused on differences in phenotype and the practice was aligned with a hierarchy where in which Europeans were at the top. Hierarchy was often seen as self-evident, so while sometimes it was talked, explicit, talked about explicitly, it wasn't always, in part because they felt that it, they didn't necessarily have to do that work. That was self-evident. The scientific field that was known as race science um, really evolved and came into its own during this time period, and medicine played a key role in its development and also its maintenance. It's important to note that the practice of racial categorization was conducted through the surveillance of black, brown, and indigenous people. And sometimes that was done on an individual basis, taking individuals and taking them through tours throughout Europe. And other times that was done on a population level. There are some key players to racial science and our understand what our understanding of racial categorization is. They had a profound impact that continues to reverberate in health sciences today. It is during this time that we see the understanding of a classification of humans into distinct races. We also see the ways in which influential thinkers um, write about this notion of five races. That would be Johann Blumenbach. And his publication is, um, it happens in 1776, which is an iconic year for American history. And as he proposes things, he also, his, his publications get translated as well. And so you have thinkers that are writing about this, and then you have translators who are also building upon what um, these thinkers are thinking too. And so the notion of five categories of races comes into its own in the latter part of the 18th century. And in many regards, it gets reduced down to three. There's some discussion about whether there's one, more than one human species or not. And this, um, this work that's taking place still permeates in the health, our understanding of health, the health sciences and healthcare. When we talk about um, race corrections and clinical algorithms, Many of them um, harken back to this, this, uh, this mode of categorizing of races using similar categories that we see in the enlightenment period. And um, forensic anthropology, for example, still grapples with uh, these categorizations and how to make of them and, the, and uses very similar language. So while this is a type of, um, it's interesting when I teach this to science students, they often refer to this as non-scientific or pseudoscience. And it really takes a couple of weeks for us to really talk about and, and, and really work with them on the notion that while we can today look at these notions and say, okay, there's no biological basis for race. So this is a pursuit that's much more ingrained in politics and economics and, um, and, and social and cultural understanding. But at the same time, understanding that science is a product of its culture. And so this is part of scientific, uh, this is part of the history of science. And an understanding that this is part of, of the history of science 
It also allows us to to better understand why we see racial categorization persist in medicine, why we see racial categorization still being discussed about whether race can serve as a proxy um, for genetic, genetic ancestry, for example. So in understanding the past, which is really an anti-racist perspective and understanding the racism today, we're able to draw threads to create an understanding of some of the thinking that we find ourselves grappling with and wanting to know how did we get here. Now, there's a lot that happens between the Enlightenment period and today, but I really want us to, um, to consider this idea that racial categorization is part of the history of science and it's also um, a legacy that we see um, reverberate throughout medicine. Not only does it reverberate around, uh, throughout medicine, but we also see the ways in which science, racial science will be used to justify certain political decision-making and also justify slavery in particular, and especially when we're talking about the US context. And one of those examples comes from a uh, book that was published this is an 1801 publication, but it had been published a, a series of times already. It's by Thomas Jefferson, and it's titled The Notes on the State of Virginia. And uh, basically, it's, um, it's set up as a format where in which he is responding to a French diplomat about um, uh, he's defending the state of Virginia and, it's, and how it's been set up. Um, and so the French diplomat asks him a series of questions. And in query 14, um, the diplomat asks Thomas Jefferson about the administration of justice and description of laws in the state of Virginia. And as Thomas Jefferson responds, he brings up the notion or the idea of the emancipation of slaves. Virginia was a state that was a slave state. And he talks about how it would threaten white democracy, and that is a concern of his. And so when he brings up the reason why emancipation won't happen, and if it happens, it has to be um, in a way in which colonization has to take place so that there's a true separation. He uses the discourse of racial science to explain his concern about race mixture. He also talks about how there's an innate difference between um, African-Americans and white Americans at this time. He uses medical understanding to justify what he sees as, or to explain what he sees as natural differences. He proceeds to talk about how there is um, uh, perhaps a different color of the blood, different color of the bile, and that he explains the difference through the deficit of black Americans is uh, part of the ways in which he justifies how emancipation is far in the future, and if so, it needs to be done in a way in which um, there's, a, there's a separation of populations. He remarks on um, Black Americans as having uh, the inability to secrete um, as much as they need to from their kidneys. So they secrete less by the kidneys, and instead they secrete more by the glands of the skin. He talks about also that there's a structure in their pulmonary apparatus. This is the language that he uses. And that remarks about how they don't have the same capacity to be able to take in air as white Americans. So in describing the ways in which in justifying the state of Virginia, he uses medicine and he uses science of that time to justify his, his understanding and his stance. 
Now, this justification not only happens when it comes to defending democracy, but it also has to do has uh, plays a huge role in the institution of slavery and the ways in which we see justification around um, keeping slavery as an institution and that debate that is really um, rising to the top in the early part of the 19th century. Plantation physicians used statements like Jefferson had used to support slavery, believing that forced labor was a way to vitalize the blood of deficient black slaves. Race as a biological construct also served Southern uh, physicians who sought to defend and benefit from the institution of slavery. They believed in their own superiority. Many of them were slave owners themselves, and they justified the inhumane system by dehumanizing black slaves. They aimed to prove that blacks were naturally subordinate to whites, and they used racial science to make this argument. They also engaged in the management of slavery by providing health care to slaves with the best interest in mind of the slave owners as their motivation. In addition, Southern physicians sought out the opportunity to forward their own professional careers by exploiting the institution of slavery through human experimentation and torture. And defending slavery was to their benefit, so they did it through this discourse of health and also as authorities in medicine. Now, another part of this history that's important to keep in mind um, would be this understanding that um, in order to justify slavery, there needs to be this understanding of a dehumanization or dehumanizing black slaves, or at least um, this understanding that they need slavery in some way. Samuel Cartwright is often referenced as a Southern physician and slave owner who used arguments um, using medical and health arguments to make this case. And he conducts um, uh, research on pulmonary function and states that through his observation, he's making this conclusion that blacks don't have the capacity as whites do to um, be able to take in air. Now, we've, there's been a lot of talk about Samuel Cartwright. We've talked about the ways in which um, you've heard, maybe you've heard in other places about how he's defending slavery. All those things are true. And there is a legacy to that that has been well uh, researched. There's also another legacy that is worth taking attention to about how um, there is uh, this understanding that the data that he collects and the type of research that he does becomes inspiration to others. And so not only are his arguments that dehumanized black slaves um, have this profound legacy in American history and also in American society today, but also the data that he collects and the type of research that he does. And so inspired by the work of Samuel Cartwright, Benjamin Gold in 1869, he conducts a, a a study uh, of black and white soldiers at the end of the Civil War. And when he conducts the survey and this large study that takes place, he publishes his work and says that um, African-Americans have a lower lung capacity than whites. Now, he doesn't make any adjustment for height, age, um, or attention to working or living conditions, or there's no consideration when it came to high pollution areas. There are many things that were left out of this equation. But his study, which is built on Cartwright's study, ends up becoming inspiration and being used by subsequent researchers and also those that are involved in insurance. 
So Frederick Hoffman, who is the chief statistician for Prudential Life Insurance Company, used this data to claim that African-Americans lack fitness for freedom, stating that the smaller lung capacity of, the, uh, of, of blacks is in itself proof of an inferior physical organism. And this will have a, an impact on how insurance is given. And you can almost kind of call it a redlining of insurance, if you will. We also have a huge debate about the spirometry, so, so, about assessing lung capacity, the spirometer, and the ways in which it still includes this racial categorization, although it's been, uh, it has evolved over the decades. This is a spirometer from um, the 1980s, but in it, you can, there's, there's these different selections that you make when it comes to race. So in thinking about the ways in which we uh, see these justifications, the way in which um, certain populations, and in particular, there's a history of anti-Black racism in health, the ways in which they're dehumanized, they're seen as less than, things are justified through the discourse of, his, of science and medicine. We also see the ways in which public health takes on many of these uh, a similar framework. So in order to keep certain publics, uh, certain populations free from disease, public health often sees the ways in which uh, certain populations need to be restricted in American history. The plague in San Francisco uh, was a situation where in which we see the quarantining of San Francisco Chinatown, and this is the early part of the 20th century, so 1900. And the quarantining uh, was set up where in which um, those who lived in Chinatown were not allowed to leave their neighborhood, but whites could come and go because there was an understanding that they were less susceptible to it. So it comes back to that deficit model of the fitness model and the relationship between race and health. And so um, this is definitely the case in San Francisco. It's also the case in Honolulu during the Pubonic Plagues. And here we see the burning of a building out of control in Honolulu and the location in Honolulu here is the Chinatown. Also political part cartoons at this time period depicted Asians as rats. And this kept in line with this discussion about public health and that Asian and Asian Americans were threats to cleanliness and public health. So public health has a history of racism as well. And one in which there's often, there's this philosophy of containment of populations was less about um, making sure that they were going to stay healthy and more about protecting white populations. And some of this discourse, we see the ways in which there are some connections or some parallels to when the um, pandemic um, begins and there's discussion about origins of COVID, COVID-19. Now, at the same time, we also have the ways in which there's a history of racism in um, the professionalization of medicine. So while we see public health taking on a scientific discourse of its time, talking about protection of populations by quarantining others, and oh, just to, I forgot to add this. So what happened with the quarantine in San Francisco with Chinatown is that through protest, it lasted three days. Um, residents of Chinatown were like, this is not, this is not right. And so it lasted a total of three days. 
And I think it's important to note that because I don't want to necessarily exploit this history of making it sound like um, uh, individuals were damaged. Instead, I want to show the ways in which these discourses evolve over time and the origins of some of these discourses about how there's uh, differences in races and there's this inherent hierarchy that's there. And sometimes that's explicit and sometimes it's made more implicitly. So when we look at the ways in which um, the professionalization of medicine used um, anti-Black racism, used notions of white, support, uh, white supremacy, and used, um, used sexism to establish itself, to develop a national identity. It happens along the same time period as uh, we see the ways in which slavery is be de being defended, the exclusive um, parameters of our democracy are being defended, and also this emergence and understanding of public health, and what happens is that the 19th century health marketplace is, uh, is pretty competitive. And medicine that we call Western medicine today, at the time, identified itself as regular medicine. And it wanted to distinguish itself from other competitors. And the American Medical Association played a huge role in, in providing that uh, a voluntary organization that was national in scope that was going to be able to do this. Founded in 1847, it was a time where it could have come out either for or against slavery. And instead of choosing a side, it focuses more on wanting to talk about the ways in which regular medicine was scientific and how this professional organization was going to raise standards in medical training and practice. The national identity, in order to uh, develop one, was grounded on black subordination and gender exclusivity. This was a brotherhood. And in order to uh, ensure that people understood it was a brotherhood, a white brotherhood, they made sure that annual meetings took place in the South and also in the North. After the war in 1868, they, they elect um, a president from Alabama. And when black physicians start coming and wanting to come to the national conferences, national conferences they're not allowed to. And the stance that the AMA takes is that it claims that it's going to, while it's developing a national identity, will let states decide for themselves of how things are going to be run. And so the AMA um, allows to, uh, to maintain its gender exclusivity and its racial exclusivity by uh, playing these types of um, uh, maneuvers. Now, not everybody agreed who was part of the AMA, and there were um, attempts to try to get more female doctors to be able to go to the AMA. There were attempts to have to support black physicians and black physicians themselves going to argue to or going to, to try to get admitted to national conferences. And then by 1895, there's the development of the National Medical Association, which is inclusive. And so there is a, a, an association that is national in scope that is also developing another national identity. The AMA will actually um, continue to discriminate um, up until the 1960s, where federal legislation made it illegal for them to do so. And it wasn't until 2008 where the AMA publicly apologized for its century and a half long record of mistreating African-American uh, physicians. Now, it's not only the AMA that when developing uh, professionalization uh, does this work that is really focusing on um, making sure that there's an exclusivity that's there. But we also see that when it comes to um, medical education and how this notion of the physician comes to be. 
Setting national standards was something that um, is seen as iconic in the development of professionalization at this time, which would be the early part of the 20th century, and is happening in many professions, including medicine. In medicine, there is an iconic um, report that is funded by uh, the Carnegie Foundation, and it is uh, conducted by Flexner, and is often referred to as the Flexner Report. It's published in 1910, and it's referred to in medical education about really setting a standard. And this discussion about the, uh, the Flexner Report today, and there's been... Um, I think there's TED Talks on it, but I know that we've had grand rounds at UCSF really dissecting the impact that the Flexner Report had on Black um, medical schools. The Flexner Report itself has been for a very long time, up until recently, um, has kind of skirted um, uh, uh, being criticized and has really been seen as a report that um, offered a standard of medical, of medical education that all schools could follow. But yet, in reading the port report, you can see the ways in which there are racist um, notions that are playing a role in how standards are being um, developed and also how schools are being assessed. Flexner was quite, uh, um, and you can see here on the slide, was very um, transparent about his ideas about Black physicians, felt that they were not necessarily able to um, treat the entire Black population and that um, they played a role in keeping whites safe from infection and contagion, but wasn't totally um, convinced that they had the capacity to do so. And in writing about black medical schools, most of the schools he gave very, very harsh reviews and only two black medical schools survived this report. And what this means is that it means that medical education in the US was just disproportionately took place at predominantly white institutions or PWIs for decades. And that has a profound impact because of the discrimination that we see, the exclusivity we see at medical schools that are predominantly white and that history that's there. And in fact, there was a recent study that came out that projected estimates of black medical graduates um, that had closed um, so what would the, um, I want to say this correctly, what would the number have been if the um, historically black medical schools that were closed due to the Flexner report were allowed to either be revamped or to persist? And out of the five medical schools that were closed, it was, um, the calculations were made and it was estimated that between 10 and 30,000 graduates were just, didn't happen. They didn't have that opportunity to go to medical school. And the study was published by Campbell and a series of other investigators, Kendall Campbell. And so before 1960, almost all black doctors are taught at HBCUs, which at this time that offer medical programs would be Morehouse, Howard, and Meharry. And so we see the ways in which medical education really became, uh, as it was professionalized and standardized, became very exclusive and not open to black individuals. Medical education itself also deals with uh, a curriculum problem, a content problem. And you'll be hearing from um, leaders of the anti-oppressive, uh, the anti-oppressive curriculum initiative here at UCSF about efforts that are underway to try to revamp the curriculum in order to think about the ways in which we can uh, 
when it comes to the delivery of content be more um, equitable and also the content itself. And what we see in medical education is we see the ways in which certain things get perpetuated because there's a lack of diversity when it comes to representation. Or when the representation occurs, it often occurs along the axes of discrimination and stereotyping. So for example, in dermatology, textbooks and journals often lack representation needed to treat patients of color. And um, here is an image of Dr. Jenna Lester, Lester, who uh, is uh, a really important and pivotal pivotal, um, dermatologist here at UCSF, who's helping make changes in the field. There's also an effort within the anti-oppressive curriculum initiative to try to um, seek access to databases that are more diverse so that more stories and more depictions can be um, offered to students. But if students are unable to see examples that are diverse, then they only have one model. And that model, interestingly, is really based off of this notion of the average man, which is who is white. At the same time, medical education also doesn't discuss the way in which racism is, uh, it kills. It kills in the United States. And that's often left out. And so when racism is discussed, it's often done through the proxy of race. And this leads to another objective that I wanted to discuss today, which is about healthcare in America, that it's never been devoid of racism. So what does that exactly mean? Well, what I'd like to offer is that it's never been devoid of racism when it comes to the way in which it perceives its patients. It's never been devoid of racism when it comes to developing technology. And it's never been devoid of racism when it's thinking about race in clinical care. A prime example of the ways in which a patient is perceived takes me back to a certain part of history that continues to reverberate in medicine and in other fields like education, and that is eugenics. Eugenics um, is a philosophy and a notion that uh, really you can see it, it as an undercurrent in health, the health sciences and medicine. And then there's also a specific historical time period where we see a eugenics movement take hold. And this is during the time where in which you see the, the concept of evolution become more popular. And this notion of if evolution is, is, is a fact, can we self-direct it? And so here we have this tree that eugenicists often would refer to. Um, and, it, and with the definition is eugenics is the self-direction of human evolution. So to boil down the movement, eugenics was really this notion about can we um, practice selective breeding to advance society? But who interpreted this and how this was defined definitely was a sociocultural product and continues to be so. U.S. geneticists, um, eugenicists, promoted the eradication of degeneracy by championing the reproduction of the fit and eliminating any chance of the reproduction of the unfit. And that was often seen through racial uh, racial lines. These fat, these fit categories were often seen as, um, as elite whites were seen as desirable and undesirable were white, poor whites, the disabled and people of color. And um, many will talk about the eugenics movement being one in which we see a culmination or an apex with Nazi Germany 
And with the practices that were in play there, sterilization, including many other horrific practices, there's this understanding of an awakening and a dissolving of eugenics. But there's a pushback to that too. As eugenics was a movement, it also touched upon key parts in scientific medicine that made it have um, resonance. It made it, there was a connection that was there. So while it was a, a, a movement of a specific time period, it also revealed certain thematic undercurrents. And those that were involved in eugenics um, shifted their focus to after World War II. The concern was less um, defined within this framework and this use of the language of eugenics and was more about population control. In California, California has a long history of uh, eugenics and in particular a state mandated or state legislated um, sterilization. Between 1909 and 1964, about 20,000 women and men were sterilized in California that we know of. And that, was, that would have been officially, official sterilizations. Now, most of these um, operations were, were performed after 1925. And in California, unlike in other areas, you did other states, you didn't have to have informed consent. Although the idea of informed consent is what I'm, I'm going to talk about in a minute. Because in other states, informed consent uh, is questionable of whether that really took place. The same that can be uh, the same can be said about California after World War II. Now, before World War II, California leads the country in the number of sterilizations. It's seen globally as a, as a front runner in uh, developing this type of laws and executing these uh, these operations in order to ensure that degeneracy would be a thing of the past by 1980. That was kind of what they predicted. In fact, officials in Nazi Germany um, asked leaders from the California eugenics movement to come to, to Germany and talk about their legislation in the 1930s. Now, like I said, with World War II, there's this belief that, you know, that these efforts really scale down but there's also a growing body of research that talks about that it's not really a scaling down, but it's a shifting. And the same can be true. The same can be said about the history of California's sterilization history. And that leads me to the story from the 1970s, where we see um, Latinx women sterilized with very ambiguous informed consent. So in the documentary, No Mas Bebes, which was uh, produced in 2015, it tells the story of these women who were sterilized at the point of labor is when they were asked to give their conformed consent to, to be able to do that. And the super, the, and so uh, many of them uh, spoke only Spanish and were not even sure what they were signing because it wasn't really explained to them and they lost their ability to have more children. This uh, documentary culminates with uh, the, the, um, the case that they put, they bring together a, a class action suit against um, LA County and USC, which is where it was LA County Hospital where they were, the practices took place. And they lose the case, but what happens is that sterilization is finally seen as illegal in California. But that doesn't mean that the practice ends there in California. 
So what we find out is that although the California sterilization law was no longer in effect after 1979, so it wasn't necessarily a law to make it illegal, but just no more, no longer in effect, in effect, some doctors continued to practice sterilizations without consent. In, 19, in 2020, the documentary Belly of the Beast exposed the hidden sterilization program in California prisons from 1997 to 2014, in which over 1,000 women were forcibly sterilized. Most of the victims of the sterilization program were Black, and many of them are now working um, with legislators in getting legislation passed that would talk about explicitly about reparations and the ways in which we can um, ensure uh, that this doesn't happen again. But here we see the ways in which the history of racism in health has a profound impact on how um, uh, women of color experience health care. Also, there's this belief that when it comes to the history of racism and health, that computers will save us and technology will make it where the bias from humans will be extracted and the technology will be able to, um, to, to save it from ourselves and provide care for all. And what we're finding is that that's definitely not the case. And in fact, race often operates as a ghost variable. And what that means is that ghost variables operate in program languages um, in a way in which they don't correspond to physical entities. And such is the case with the pulse oximeter. That this is a device that if you have darker skin, it's not going to read your readings as accurately as if you have lighter skin. And so here we see a prime example of the way in which whiteness um, operates. There's a presumption of whiteness and there's also a neutrality to whiteness in medicine that has a long history. And I would argue you could root it back to this notion of racial categorization and also the ways in which health is framed and how healthcare is perceived in the United States in particular. There are efforts to try to change this. We see the ways in which race correction and clinical algorithms has become a very hot topic. And like I said, I, I, I am talking about the history of this is as we see these uh, efforts to really challenge the ways in which race correction has become part of clinical algorithms in, in practice in the United States, often um, in a way in which it's very, uh, it, it remains not transparent for the patient and sometimes for the practitioner, um, we see a pushback, we see an increased dialogue around this. But what, how did we get here to become, to, in the first place, would be the question of a historian, which is why I'm asking today. So as we see things about how there's been um, race as part of the calculation for whether you're going to have a vaginal birth or C-section after your first, after your first, um, your baby, after the first time you've delivered a baby and it's been um, C-section, to the ways in which we've talked about um, kidney donor um, risk index and race and how race has, has been a factor in that index. The question for a historian is how did we get here? And I would say when it comes to the, to the notion of the kidney index, the, the donor risk index, there is a thread that you could make from that um, race uh, correction or race um, norming is also a way in which uh, it's referenced 
and this understanding that there's a difference between black and whites that Thomas Jefferson was talking about and this notion of secretion of, uh, from the kidney being different to what we see today. There's a lot of steps along the way, but my point here is that it's founded on the understanding of a racial categorization that race is, uh, is biological or race can be used as a proxy for racism. And we also see the ways in which there is a long history of racism in just health research and whether that's extracting um, truths uh, through human experimentation, as we can see in the antebellum period um, with, doc- with uh, Sims and what he did to black uh, female slaves in order to extract biological truths to also the United States Public Health um, Service deciding to conduct a syphilis study at Tuskegee and it getting referred to as the Tuskegee study, which has a history of being a black institution. I'd like to argue that the study, which took place from 1932 to 1972, was re- it really should be called the United States Public Health Syphilis Study at Tuskegee because it is the United States Public Health Service that decides that it wants to see if there's truly a racial difference in how syphilis is contracted and experienced. Again, this notion of racial categorization playing a role in, um, in, in public health. We also have the story of Henrietta Lacks and the ways in which there is the, um, the use of her body to create an industry and how, again, how this is um, an example of the long history of racism and health research. And also we see the ways in which certain individuals who are trying to access um, care end up becoming victims of experimentation, as was the case of Elmer Allen when he came, when he went into a UCSF um, free clinic to have his knee treated and he ended up getting injected with plutonium and being part of the radiation experiments in the latter part of the 1940s. Now, Francis Collin, who led the Human Genome Project um, uh, when, in 2000, when the Human Genome Project was uh, completed, he was very excited um, when he came to the White House to be part of uh, kind of the declaration that it was over, in part because he wanted to um, state that race uh, is just a myth that uh, race has no biology. It's a social problem for, and racism is a social problem. And that now that we understand that there is no biological basis for race, we can move on and talk about genetic ancestry and also talk more about the ways in which the more we know about genetics, the more that we can treat and promote, treat disease and promote health. So why is race being continued to be used as a proxy for so many things, whether it's racism, genetic ancestry, or other elements? And perhaps it's because there's a failure to address racism. Now, um, many might remember the JAMA podcast, I'm getting really close to the present, but this is history, it happened earlier this year. And it was a podcast where in which we had two um, doctors, Dr. Ed Livingston and Mitchell Katz, talk about structural racism. And they did so with this kind of naivete of not knowing that there was structural racism. And there was a lot of pushback from this. 
So in no way am I going to say that from these opinions of two individuals that I'm going to say Alojama feels a certain way or the medical profession. But I think they serve a really important example in the ways in which structural racism, when, it talk, when we talk about health research, when we talk about health outcomes, and when we talk about medicine, isn't necessarily discussed. When we talk about health research, there's a lot of questions about how do we test this? Um, when we talk about it within the context of medical education, again, it's the question on the exam that seems to be the hardest one to grade or put together. It, it, and and the, the use and language of race instead of racism seems to work um, and, is an, and, and there seems to be less description, in part because it naturalizes the inequalities that were established a very long time ago um, in order to justify inequities. Um, also to note about the, about the um, JAMA podcast is that it was scrubbed from the internet for a while. They didn't want that to be part of history, but from a pushback, it, it's now back there. It's now back on the internet and you're able to access it. I wonder about um, the potential of universal healthcare, or just healthcare in general. And when thinking about the potential, um, it makes me think of an essay from James Baldwin about education, where he talks about the persistence of the delusion of white supremacy in this country and he wonders if it causes any real concept of education to be as remote and as such to be feared as change or freedom itself. And I wonder the same about healthcare and even more so about universal healthcare. It also makes me think about the culture of medicine. I hear a lot about the culture of medicine in the School of Medicine, the ways in which there is this push to, um, to uh to have a sense of urgency, to get through a lot, a, a pursuit of objectivity, um, fast-pacedness. And it reminded me of um, a, a document that I read in, in the late 90s, and it's come back up again um, recently by Tema Kuhn about white supremacy culture. And are we not only talking about the history of racism and health, um, are we not also maybe perhaps considering the ways in which white supremacy has framed that racism? And I also want to leave us with this notion that, you know, I acknowledge that there's a life-affirming ethos of healthcare, that many people get involved in healthcare because they want to help people. My son, who's nine, the other day stopped in the middle of talking about something and said, Mom, I want to be, <laughs> I think I want to be a doctor because I really like helping people and they seem to really help people. And with that, you know, he has notions of what it could be like to be a doctor at age nine. And I think that comes from there is this intentionality of wanting to promote life. But at the same time, we need to address the history of anti-Black racism in science, medicine, and healthcare to be able to promise life-affirming health practices, healthcare practices, health research. In order to be able to move forward, we need to acknowledge the past. And it's not just an acknowledgement but also as um, information of how we will frame what we do in the present as clinicians, as social scientists, as health practitioners, as, um, as patients, that it is in the room and it is in our framework of what we understand as health, the history of public health, the history of health research, and the history of healthcare in the United States. And so I leave you with this final slide of a thank you. 
Um, it was very, I really appreciated uh, being able to share this with you and look forward to questions. I just want to thank you so very much, Dr. Medeiros. That was a wonderful, wonderful presentation. And there are a number of questions that um, ha have come in. So I, I thank you so much for your uh, broad um, description of the, of the very painful, very painful and pers personally very painful history. Uh, one of the questions is related to the, the change in the tone from the American Medical Association. What brought that about? The question specifically is what forced the AMA to change? And would you say, are we talking about the changes that you were talking about or some of the changes that I was? The changes in sort of accepting Blacks and then more recently to actually acknowledge racism as a public health crisis. Did right. that, how that come about? Well, I think there's a few ways in which that came about. One, the change that happens there's very little change that happens up until the 1960s. It really takes federal legislation to push change in the AMA. And so um, I'd have to say in that civil rights movement, in that moment, that was the change. And so while it's legislation that was passed, that legislation is passed because of the work of people like Martin Luther King, because of Malcolm X, because of um, other activists at that time period, because of Emmett Till. So that was, that, that's in part where we see that. Um, that those changes that are happening. And you could say that along the lines, this, this, we really do see ourselves in a, or I see, or I looking in American history, I feel like we are in a, in a, in a moment where in which we see acknowledgements that are happening that have not happened um, and that are coming from associations. I do think that there is an increased understanding of the ways in which racism um, acts uh, in, in deadly ways um, and that there is a way in which to turn away seems to be less of a possibility. At the mm -hmm. same time, um, you know, there's burnout, there's fatigue. I am excited. I am, uh, I am optimistic about uh, how the AMA has shifted course, how they've asked for institutions to reflect on their own history, um, how they've talked about a strategic plan to end racism in healthcare. Um, it will be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, and so uh, it is a marathon, not a sprint. And I, I hope that um, there's a dedication there. There's also, there's limits to this too. You know, there's, right. there, to go at the pace that we've been going in the past year seems unsustainable. And that, um, and to do that with a lack of funding and a list of demands from associations is incomplete. And so there needs to be also a match that takes place as well. So um, while I remain optimistic at the same time, there's also some writing on the wall that is concerning. Yeah, there's always the risk of the backlash, right? That happens sometimes and history proves that in case when there's some forward progress, there's often the opportunity where things get really pushed back and uh, set aside as- There will be a pushback. Yeah. There will be a pushback. We don't know when it is yet, but there'll be a pushback. Right. So the next question is re in reference to the conversation you raised about the sterilizations that took, took place. And if you could talk a little bit more about who ordered these sterilizations and how, why, how did that happen? And then under what circumstances did it happen? Um, and people want to know more about it if there are additional resources for them. There's a great documentary, No Mas Babies. And, no um, Mas Babies? 
Right. Um, so <laughs> I wanted to say that what's interesting about it is that it's through the L.A. County um, Hospital and uh, and also there's a collaboration with USC. And so um, there's this understanding that there's a concern about population control. And so where we see concerns about eugenics um, before World War II, that gets translated into this idea that certain people, certain populations are having too many children. And we need to think about ways in which we can help them in family planning. So there's a push in ideas about family planning, for example. And so these women are definitely, um, they're being identified as women that are going to be more lower economic status. They're going into a county hospital for the care. And so that's one um, identifier that that makes them stand out. They're also mm-hmm. having a difficult labor. So there's often this opportunity for them to sign informed consent. They're not English speaking. So they're being identified as, um, again, um, kind of individuals that might not understand that having more than one child will um, perpetuate um, poverty. And, uh, and so these are all factors that lead to this practice. The practice happens in the mid-1970s at, um, in L.A. County, and the head of the, um, the, head of the uh, institution, the head of the department, I can't remember his name right now. The whole case is named after him. Is um, Dr. I'm going to remember it. I didn't want to say that. Oh, it's Dr. Killigan. And so uh, he is the person that has supervision. And the case is against him. The case at the, the class action suit is against him. And he claims that he didn't have um, necessarily, uh, his oversight wasn't that specific. And so uh, he didn't quite understand what was going on. And he thought that that they did receive informed consent. Um, and to this, and, and he is also seen as uh, a father in, um, in this field. And so when it comes to technology and fetal health, he's definitely seen as somebody who is a pioneer. And there are um, scholarships that are given in his name. And there is, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a similar situation that we see with other um, practitioners that have a sordid past. And like I said, he kind of disavows himself from the program itself. Um, and they're not able to, to win their case. And the way in which they're not able to win their case, I don't want a spoiler alert over the, do- uh, the documentary, um, but it has to do with the anthropologist coming in saying that um, cultural differences and the fact that they were a different culture was the reason why there was a miscommunication. And so it kind of, it blames the victim. It doesn't necessarily show or understand the responsibility being on the healthcare practitioners. Thank you. It speaks to confounded failures, it sounds like. The next um, question asks about generational trauma and stress you know, caused by racism. And how can that, and they've heard and, and they want to know more about, how does that show up biologically or at the cellular level? I mean, we've have, you know, Elizabeth Blackburn, our, our Nobel Prize laureate, who talks about our telomeres and how um, stress of racism may show up. Can you touch on that a little bit? I can to some extent, in part because um, in the School of Medicine today, we actually had a lecture on the embodiment of stress. And it talked about the embodiment of stress, in particular, when it comes to racism and the way in which um, an understanding the long-term impact that racism can have on the body and that um, through the field of epigenetics, we have a better understanding of how um, racism can have a profound impact on um, on, uh, on fetal health, has a profound impact on decision-making um, in large part because that continual flush of cortisol um, for long periods of time 
um, really has a profound impact in the ways in which uh, we can make decisions. It also has a profound impact on uh, cardiovascular health. It has a profound impact on um, on your um, hippocampus. So there are many ways in which the brain, there's, there's, there's a good amount of research in the ways in which the brain um, is, is impacted by um, endemic, um, uh, endemic racism and just persistent uh, discrimination and the stress that that causes on the human body. It's, it's profound. Um, there is some good work that's out there. It's not necessarily my field of research, but like I said, um, it definitely has a profound impact on bodies. And and also to keep in mind, you know, it has an impact just on life expectancy. You do, you know, as the um, definition um, uh, pointed to, it causes premature death. And it does so by attacking the, your, your systems um, through a, a long period of time. Exactly. Thank you so much. Now, the next question asks about um, ethnic background. It says, I feel that my ethnic background is relevant to assessing my health. When it is appropriate, when is it appropriate to take a person's background into account? If they give the example about the South Asian uh, body mass index uh, chart that was a game changer for them and for their family members, and and so, at what points do um, do we consider ancestry, genetic makeup, uh, ethnic background in decision making? You know, it's okay. So this is a this is interesting. I'm going to answer this, but. I'm- it's going to take me a couple, just like a minute to get there. And in part, this has to do with this idea of, you know, is race a proxy for genetic ancestry? Um, and the thing is, is that it's not, but there are, there is some overlap with, with the social construct of race and genetic ancestry. There, there is, you can see that there is, it's almost like a Venn diagram of sorts, but it's, it's not an accurate proxy. And the same could be said about, you know, you have genetic ancestry and you also have migration of individuals and populations. And so that plays a role too. And so I think that when it comes to discussing race and, and ethnicities, um, and, and sometimes in the defense of them, people have defended the, continued use of them, uh, of this language in clinical care, in health research, saying it's it's what we've got right now. That's what helps. And I think that um, what's important about that is that the way in which someone self-identifies or community identifies is a key, it, it gives us clues to life experiences from, it gives clues to genetic ancestry. It gives clues to, um, to uh, elements and characteristics that are uh, are not necessarily connected biologically, but do have an overlap. So I would argue that things like the um, BMI and 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 the the, spe- the specificity of the Asian population and BMI index has a lot to do with genetic ancestry, and it's kind of like this clunkiness that's taken place. But it's so much more profound and accurate than historically what growth charts have looked like, right? And so, which has often been um, a pursuit where in which data is collected in order to uh, present optimal norms. And so that's even to the case of in the 1970s when it came to the first set of uh, growth charts in the United States, they had a lack of data for um, infants zero to two and they decided to use data from the um, FELL study that was focusing on growth and development. And it was about 600 
white middle-class uh, infants. And the argument was, we're doing this because this is how uh, babies coming in, this is how they should weigh. This is how they right. should grow, right? And so I think those have really been such a disservice. Um, you see other charts coming up that are, are closer to representing populations in a much more um, accurate way. Right, very good, yes. So this work is very difficult. And at the onset, you talked about, you know, just needing to sometimes step away and breathe in balance. And so I, what the, one of the questions asked about your journey to this work and um, how um, you have, as a white uh, woman, uh, found your way into this work and how have you thought about um, your own life experiences. And I know we do a lot of work as, as colleagues around unconscious bias, et cetera, at the, at the university. So h- how has that impacted your approach to doing this um, great work that you're doing? Um, well, I, um, I come to this work with humility. I come to this work understanding that my lived experiences um, uh are incomplete and totally understanding um, the history of racism in the United States and the history of racism in health and healthcare. Um, I come to this experience um, and to this work um, knowing that um, given uh, the development of my research and research interest, I come um, with those that are uh, amazing icons in this work that have come before me that are investigators of color, that are scholars of color, that um, just provide such um, inspiration and important insight and also research and publications. And so I come to this work in that way. Um, I uh, I make mistakes. <laughs> um, I learn from those. Mis- I try to learn from those mistakes as best as I can. I also feel that, um, you know, this is the time where um, someone would talk about allyship. And I do definitely understand that concept. And I would say that I, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of value to it. I also feel though, um, when we talk about allyship, it makes it sound as if somehow the, the topic of racism and health is not also central to your experience, to to a white person's experience of healthcare. And it is. You know, and the privilege that you that I have received as a white woman um, is in part due to the history of racism and health or understanding of racial categorization, Um, because I benefit from the system uh, of institutional racism doesn't mean that it doesn't impact my health care outcomes and my health outcomes as well. Um, So I think that that so while I appreciate the discourse of allyship, I also feel that that kind of makes it sound like you're on the sidelines and you're not. And and, and this is. And, you know, I also think that, you know, when you when you really get into deep about the history of healthcare in the United States, and as that research for me continued to evolve to not see race and racism as central to that that history is um, is uh, there's there's a there's a missing piece that's there. if If there's not an understanding of how central it is to the ways in which we understand health, the way in which we see fitness, the way we see norms, the way in which we, um, de- we being the United States, has um, uh, provided healthcare and how we have different really healthcare systems, one could argue, um, based along um, racial lines. So I think that in some ways, it, I mean, you, you need to be actively engaged in understanding that history if that is a, um, a line of research for you, which it is for me. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And and for me as a chief diversity officer and moving institution forward, you need everyone at the table. This is not a problem that those who are in a position of being oppressed, marginalized, and often unheard are the solution, right? They're, they really are not. Uh, by ourselves, we can't do the work. The work has to involve all of us. It's a whole system uh, job for sure. So I thank and you I for have, that. And I have to say, you know, and I've been, I think being at UCSF as a, as a researcher, I'm inspired by the work and the leaders that are here too. And so, you know, what you have done, Dr. Navarro, and um, what Dr. Raccoon has done, um, the, the leadership that you provided through ODO, hosting this, the discussions that you've had, the long meetings that you guys have led and have held and gotten people together. I mean, th- th- that is really um, inspiration. If that can be done at an inst- you guys can execute that at an institutional level. What can we do in the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences? What can we do as researchers? And so, you know, the Office of Diversity and Outreach has really been um, a pioneer in this work at UCSF and uh, has taken such a leadership role in uh, being able to help us really kind of develop a discourse to experiment with certain things, to be able to really dive into certain um, elements of diversity, equity, inclusion, of anti-racist work, of anti-oppressive work that wouldn't, wouldn't be possible if you weren't here. Thank you so much for that. I mean, it takes, it's just taken a long time for us to build the capacity to engage in some of these very challenging conversations. I have one last question that I was thinking of as I listened to the news about the NFL and the concussion uh, protocols. I don't know if you've heard this, you know, they're talking about how they were using race norming to determine whether or not there was eligibility for um, part of this concussion settlement. And has that come up, this notion of race norming um, in some of your other um, evaluations of how race has shown up in the past and Kind of what are your thoughts about about that? And that's that's current day or yesterday's history, I guess. <laughs> it definitely is current day. Um, I, I think we can still we can call it historic, though, too, that they're talking about it. The fact that, um, you know, there are the way in which. OK, this is how I think about it. So when we talk about the history of racism and health, it's like I said, I, I really do like this title because it doesn't necessarily talk about the healthcare industry. That's part of it. Doesn't necessarily just say medicine because that's part of it. But it shows the way in which there's a conceptual understanding and that is pervasive. So when it comes to race norming um, with the NFL and concussions, one could draw a parallel of the ways in which we see race norming happening in other industries um, or other sports, you know, um, and I would not be surprised to hear of other examples of this because the way in which medicine has an authoritative um, position in our society, the ways in which it, it, it crafts certain understandings, it allowed the NFL to take this um, framework of racial categorization. Race, norm, race norming is a way of applying our notion of racial categorization, right? And so right. where does that come from? That comes from science, it comes from medicine. And so we see the ways in which these ideas and these notions and these concepts percolate in, in, in many different um, aspects of American society. And I also think that there's a direct relationship between you know, insurance, access to wealth, 
um, house <laughs> home ownership. I mean, these things are all connected and they're often connected through a discourse of, of a deficit model that someone either needs assistance or is less than in some ways. Again, it goes back to these notions of, of categorization of races. Um, and, and so we see the ways in which there is a real, um, uh, it's infused in so much more of our elements of our society and culture than just medicine itself. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It speaks to the, just the pernicious and capricious nature of the systemic, meaning it's in all the systems, uh, nature of which in which it shows up. Um, well, I just can't thank you enough for this enlightening presentation to all of us. What a perfect way to start off our series to help us have that context so that as we delve into the persistence across our mini series of, of courses, we'll be able to to hold on to um, this great amount of information that you shared with us. It's really been just outstanding as I knew it would be. I uh, thank you so much for agreeing to present to us today. Um, to all of you who've joined us, we're grateful for you joining us. We thank you for your, your questions and your engagement with us. And I love the quote uh, Chiquita put in about when we learn more, we can ignore less. And we hope to to learn more, all of us collectively together and to engage together because it's only through our collective actions that we're going to be able to, to make a change. So with that, I wish you all a good night. And again, to Dr. Medeiros, thank you so much for your uh, skill, expertise, and for your presentation tonight. We're grateful for that. Have a good night. Thanks all. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.